This is Redress Radio, a Japanese-American podcast on history, politics, and activism. I'm your host, David Moria. How important is it for us to share stories? And how valuable is it to teach our children the stories of their ancestors? When we pass down our history and the history of our parents and our grandparents, the next generation is able to understand where they came from and how valuable their life is. If you've ever heard of the term intergenerational trauma, it refers to the ways in which trauma experienced in one generation affects the health and well-being of descendants of the future generations. The suffering of our parents have a deep and long-lasting effect into our lives. That means what I experience in my life may affect the experience of my children, and the experience of my parents affects me, and the experience of my grandparents affects them. It is a very recognizable trait within the Japanese-American community. Intergenerational trauma is very hard to notice if you're not looking for it. It's very possible to combat those with understanding that it is intergenerational trauma and not your fault. Today, Bettina Adachi. She's a sansei. For those who don't know what a sansei is, a sansei is a Japanese-American of third-generation descent. That means their grandparents were immigrants from Japan. I would like you to listen to her story and hear how the camps affected her mother, and how her mother passed down some of those traits to Tina. And for those Japanese Americans who have parents or a family who are in the camps, you may start to notice why they do certain things. I can see a lot of these traits in my father and my grandmother. I can't blame them for what they do. It's not their fault. I just have to accept that this is who they are because the government uprooted their lives and changed them forever. The only way to break the cycle is to be the difference, and to be the difference is to speak about the issues. We need to talk about these things. If we don't talk about them, we don't know. And if we don't know, we're living in ignorance. All right, now we can finally move to the Sansei member of our panel, Tina Adachi, and I think you're going to partly respond to some of the things that were said, and partly to give us uh, her what she saw in her own parents as they went through the experience. Well, let me speak first as a, a member of the media and, and say to those who have um, expressed sentiments about how important it is that this story be taken outside of this room, which I, I think is absolutely correct, that I think that is indeed what's going to happen. That in the next week here in Chicago, we're going to see this story on the 6 o'clock news and the 10 o'clock news and the front page newspapers because the press coverage for the hearings that have taken place so far in Washington, D.C., in Los Angeles, and San Francisco has been really just fantastic and it, it's accomplished exactly what we, I think, had hoped the whole commission and hearing process would accomplish. I think you should hold on to your hats for the next few days here in Chicago. Next, I, I want to also personally thank the other members of the panel for sharing their stories and let you know that I know I now know more about your experiences than I know about the experiences of my own parents because I was asked to speak about the Sansei experience as a, a typical Sansei and I think a part of that is the fact that I I found out about the camps not from my parents but from Walter Cronkite. The first recollection that I have of hearing or knowing anything about them was when I saw that 20th Century Presents documentary, The Pride and the Shame, I think that that's the name of it. And really, before that, I, I hadn't really been told anything about it. 
I had heard the word camps before, and I remember my mother saying, when we were in camp, we did this or we did that, or this is how we did it in camp. And I always thought she meant summer camp. That, that was the only kind of camp that I'd ever heard of that I had any experience with. And plus, she would always, she would always tell the more humorous stories, the lighter ones, whatever. She, and so I, I just I really thought it was summer camp that she was referring to. Both my parents were born and raised in Southern California. My father in Los Angeles and my mother in Terminal Island. They, along with their families, were relocated. My uh, father was at Poston and my mother was at Amachi. And then they both came to Chicago to find jobs, which is how most of the Japanese community in Chicago got here. They met here. They happened to be living in the same apartment building. They got married and, and had a family. Two girls and two boys. I'm the oldest. I think I'd have to describe it in a lot of ways as a typically American home. We ate typically American food, fried chicken and pizza and tacos. <laughs> but I also remember that whatever other starch we had, potatoes or noodles or, or bread or whatever, we also had rice at every meal. And when I got married, my husband, who's now my ex-husband, I was surprised that he thought it was peculiar that we had rice when we also had potatoes. <laughs> because I didn't think that was, was peculiar. <laughs> anyway, that's not why we got divorced. But Anyway, when I think about how it affected my life, how it affected my upbringing, uh, I don't have a real hard luck story to tell that wasn't real hard economic times. We were comfortable. We were certainly nowhere near rich, but we always had food on the table and nice clothes and great Christmases. But I know that that is because my parents worked hard. And I know that a lot of dreams got sidetracked, that when the war came, my father was a graduate student. And I know he didn't expect to to one day work after going to graduate school as a laborer, which he did when he came to Chicago. And then he went the small business route, and he owned a, a dry cleaners and a florist shop. And now for about the last 20 years, he's worked as a, a manufacturer's rep, and, and so that's been good and stable. And we all turned out okay. We're not doctors and lawyers, but we're not drug addicts and convicts either, and we're all even employed. But I sometimes wonder how it might have been had that not happened, because I know my parents' life didn't turn out exactly as, as they had planned it and as they had wished it to be. I don't think that my parents tried to compensate or to overcompensate for the experience by being super patriotic. We, we didn't wave the flag. We weren't more American than any of our neighbors. But probably the American part of our heritage was more emphasized than the Japanese. I remember one time when my youngest brother John, when he was about five, a woman asked him, what are you? And he answered, a Baptist. <laughs> and I knew, of course, that she had meant, are you Chinese, are you Japanese, whatever. And it was clear that he didn't even really think in those terms. And the answer that just came to mind right away was, I'm a Baptist. I, I remember that my mother, I, I always knew my mother never liked horses. And I never really knew why. And now, I know it's because she was one of the people who was... Uh, was located in, in Santa Anita first before uh, being sent on to Wamachi. I think that there are some things I'm aware of and there are other things that I'm not and that I may never really know or understand. 
And there are some things that I've just found out recently accidentally. For example, I was reading an interview with a woman, uh, an Issei woman who lives in Indiana. It was in an Indiana paper. She was talking about the experience. And she mentioned that to this day, she has never been able to eat peanut butter and jelly because of the fact that I guess that was a real staple in the diet at the camps. And I never knew why I was the only kid in school who never got fed peanut butter and jelly. We just didn't have it in the house. And everybody else did, and I, I didn't really think too much about it. And then I read that, and that was another piece of the puzzle that sort of fit in, that I knew then why that had been. But anyway, so I found out something about the camps through Walter Cronkite. But still, we didn't really sit down and talk about it, and I think that, that I got the unspoken message that it wasn't a subject that my parents were anxious to talk about. And it was not until I went to college and I did a term paper for a political science class about the experience that I went to the library, and it was a good library, and I gathered up an armful of, of books and papers and photographs, and I just sat down for a day and I started reading them, and I started going through them, and really finding out what had happened about both the history of racism against Asians in the United States and then finally that culminating in the evacuation and seeing the faces of my family in the photographs. And I remember I just sat there in the library and I wept. I just, I couldn't really believe it and it was just, it was a shock, it was traumatic, it was just this real sort of cataclysmic experience to go through. I know that a lot of the typical Sansei reaction is anger with the Nisei to not exactly blame them, but to say, how could you let that happen? Why didn't you fight back? Why didn't you protest? Uh, and I think that's just not understanding the times that the whole thing took place in. For some reason, I never had that particular reaction. I never blamed my parents. I always saw them as the victim. I think that's partly because I grew up in very political times. I grew up in the times of and as a part of the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, the women's movement. And those movements were all directed against the system. And they were all based on you know, not blaming the victim, on seeing that it wasn't those people's fault. It was, in fact, you know, that the anger should be directed elsewhere. And so, for me at least, my anger was always directed elsewhere. And I think that was a part of why I was always very active politically, and I never had too many illusions about American perfection, having known what had happened to my own people, to my own family. One of the results for me was that when I found out about two years ago that the Japanese American Citizens League was involved in a redress campaign that was in fact a major, if not the major priority for them, that was enough for me to, to make me finally join the organization, which I hadn't known too much about, but I think I had associated it with uh, Japanese in general who were not necessarily liberal or conservative, but I would say more apolitical than anything else, and that was probably true for my parents. And I thought the JCL was just a group that ran a credit union and uh, plane rides to Japan. But when I found out they were involved in this, I thought that was so important. I thought that was about the most important thing that I could do at that time was to join the organization and, and support them in that way. and, and try and become active in the campaign. 
And I've heard from JCL leaders around the country that it has, in many cities, the Sanse have been very active in this campaign, which makes me very happy. That in fact, it, it has sometimes been the Sanse who have really forced the issue, who have really forced the hand of the Nisei, who have really just said this just has to be done. And I think it, it is easier for us because it's very personal, but we still have something of a distance that our parents don't have, that the people who actually went through it don't have. It doesn't mean for us opening up the old wounds in quite the same way. And also because of perhaps the kind of political education that we had going to college when, when we went to school, that, that kind of protest was really very much a, a part of our character and just something that we were familiar with. I said earlier that I now know more about your experiences than I do about my parents, and it's still yet to come that I will sit down with my parents and really ask them to please tell me about what happened because I'm not sure, I guess, that they're ready to go through that. And I understand why people are reluctant still to do it, because it's a very painful process. I think it's an absolutely necessary one on a purely personal basis that in order really to exercise those demons, you have to open the door, and that means going through a lot of pain. I'm not sure my parents are ready to go through that, and I'm not sure I want to put them through that, and I'm not sure I'm ready to go through it with them. But I think that this whole event that's taking place now provides for us a vehicle to do that to some degree and I hope that a lot of people will take this opportunity to do exactly that. I know for myself that one of the the nicest things that happened to me in the last few days and I was surprised at it was that my mother told me that she was planning to be at the hearings for both days and it isn't as if she's totally disassociated herself from the issue and I think she's happy that I'm in JCL and she and my parents have finally joined it and they asked me about what's going on but I didn't know that she was willing to come here and sit through the hearings for two days and so we're gonna come together and I think that will really I think that will really be great that, that's um, your chance yeah to get I guess so her. yeah anyway I guess that's about what I wanted to say, and I hope that there are other Sansei in the room who are here. I know you're here. And if others would like to share to what I've said, I think that would be a good idea, too. I wanted to ask Tina on the end. Professor Daniels referred to what he called the myth of the model citizen. I wondered if the Sansei, if in your experience, or you would want to speak to the issue of pressure on the children, either by their parents or by the society at large, to achieve to be super in ways that other children perhaps didn't feel the same kind of pressure? I think that there was a pressure to excel. And oh, one thing I wanted to say was when, when we were talking earlier about how our parents hadn't told us, and if I blame my parents for anything, I blamed them for that. I didn't blame them for what happened. But now that I think about it, Maybe there was a certain wisdom in that because the fact that I was protected from what happened to them during a lot, during my early formative years, I think perhaps it could be argued that contributed to my having a pretty strong and pretty healthy self-esteem. And perhaps if I had heard about what had happened at a much younger age, I might have been much more deeply affected by feelings of shame or guilt or whatever that I wasn't. And as a result, for myself, for my family, and for many of the other Sansei, I think you will find that many 
did do very well in school, have done very well professionally, were school leaders, were largely accepted, especially for those of us in the Midwest. On the West Coast, it's a little bit different because the Japanese community there is much larger and it's much more cohesive, and many people there grow up knowing mostly other Japanese. Here, most of the Sansei grew up in largely white communities, and we had to be accepted by non-Japanese. And I would say to a large degree we were. I think that there were strong cultural precepts about not doing anything to disgrace the family. And probably, and I don't think that this is right, instead of being told to do something or not to do something because of its inherent value or morality, because it was inherently right or wrong, the admonition was do it because what will other people think, which I don't think is a particularly good one. I, it's hard for me to separate out what was directly a result of the camp experience and what was largely just culturally Japanese going back long before World War II. Angelina, Dr. Pedroso. Yeah. I wanted to make a comment that I think is important and the young gentleman standing there, he was concerned that there were no here enough young Japanese people. And I am concerned, due to my experiences of persecution, that we believe that we need the help of the majority. We need to make aware the majority Caucasian population of what happens. Because if something is going to be accomplished next week, it's because more people become aware of it. And I think, I don't feel disappointed because there are 100 people here, because I say 100 voices that believe in what they are saying can make a difference. And that I think it's important, not in our anger, not to make guilty these ones that come here, but to say, carry the voice, let people know that injustices took place and help us to do something about. I think it's important to take the positive approach. I, I like the way this gentleman reacted. He's angry because he was a victim and he has given his life to this country and this is his land. But I think you are not alone because there are so many of us that go through the same thing. But the question is to get people to join us. No one can be refusing a revolution. Everybody has to join and not to get tired and be brave enough to present our points and try to convince people. The only way is, is just not to antagonize, to, but to convince them. And for that, we will have to repeat and repeat and don't let anyone say, it's enough of it. It happens 40 years ago. 40 years is so close. But we are not going to let people 200 years from now forget about because it's history. And some of those people will write that history book and will be no one history book written by a Japanese descendant. Will be history written but Americans here. And I think that is the point. Any others? Yes, Greg. Dr. Singleton. I first heard about the concentration camps, as a matter of fact, from Professor Daniels when I was a student years ago at uh, UCLA. Uh, never mind how many. He had just completed his work on a book entitled The Politics of Prejudice, which was generally about 
anti-Asian feelings, more specifically about anti-Japanese feelings uh, in California. He was beginning to think about looking into the concentration camp experience. I was absolutely appalled. I knew nothing about it. My first reaction was extreme guilt. Well, since I was born in 1940, figured out after a while that I wasn't involved in any of the uh, policy-making decisions, and after a while, my guilt turned to anger. I'm not ashamed of what happened to you. I'm angry about what happened. It's not going to do me any good to sit around feeling guilty about it. It might do a lot of good for me to feel angry about it, and for others beyond this room and beyond this community to feel angry about it. I would advise you to take this message to a much broader audience to realize that there are going to be some Caucasians who initially, when they hear about it, are going to feel tremendously guilty and will, some of them will even shy away from it. I've seen this over and over again. When this comes up in my classes, in my survey courses in U.S. history, I get a wide variety of reactions. Some students will say, no, it isn't so, Singleton's lying to us again. <laughs> Others will say, pass that by me again, can that possibly be? Others will become very angry. Others will actually react in a very funny way. They will try to find reasons to excuse that behavior because they are so terribly ashamed of it. Of course, whenever we're ashamed of something, I see this at home. There's a 16-year-old at home and a 15-year-old at home. You see this all the time. I'm so terribly ashamed of, of this, I am going to find a good reason why it should be. Of course, I'm in at 3 o'clock, and I should have been in at 11 o'clock, but I've got a good excuse for it. I see this reaction all the time. Please realize that there are going to be some Caucasians who are going to re react like that initially. But I think that ultimately, the goal is to create anger. I am not ashamed. I am angry, and I'm damn proud that you people are my fellow citizens. May I, can, may I make a comment, yes. please? Uh, where I'm working, there's a 16-year-old girl, Caucasian girl, and when this conference was to be held, she heard about it from uh, me, and uh, she said, what's the conference about? I said, well, it's about uh, Japanese-American 40 years back. So what, what happened? I said, we're in a concentration camp. She said, I don't believe you. I said, hang on. I had the schedule of the conference with me at that time. I showed her the conference schedule, and she read it, and she said, I still don't believe it. I said, would you mind going home and asking your mother to find out what happened, to see whether they knew anything about Japanese plight in 1942. And I said, have you heard of the phrase Emancipation Proclamation? And I had a hell of a time trying to pronounce it when I was a kid. <laughs> Let alone trying to spell it. Came 1940, uh, 41, 42, I said, I heard it at that time, and I said, have you heard of the phrase habeas corpus? She said, yes, of course. That's one of the best uh, documents or a thing that could be happened to criminals. I said, well, we didn't have it. <laughs> she said, I don't believe you. I said, look, if you would like to know more about it, I said, do you have any friends in your age bracket that would like to know? She said, yes, I talked about it and they don't believe it. I said, I will set up a uh, session, coffee break or whatever. You want to bring your friends? And I said, I'll talk to them.
I'll bring anybody in the Japanese community, if you want to hear their story about it, I'll bring them. She said, we'll be very interested. And I think eventually this story is going to go out. And uh, again, I asked the young girl uh, about due process of law. And she said, of course. I said, we didn't have it. I don't believe you. She kept on denying the fact that it actually happened 40 years ago. And But I think this is a start. I think that we are going to get this story out. And I think we should get it out. I think that uh, the, the one thing I must say in closing is that we have some Caucasian citizens here that we've been hammering at the government very badly, and I want to temper a little bit. And Minoru Yasui said at one time is that the Constitution itself is a very good piece of paper. The only person that was wrong with it was the fact that at that particular time the administrators that misinterpreted the Constitution or misunderstood it. And those are the people of that fault. And I think that this should go out into the public. To let them know that the Constitution is still a, a strong document. Thank you. Thank you. I, I wonder if we just close the session. Why is it important to tell our stories and share them with others and our family? I believe it's for us to understand the strength that we have in our own blood. Whether we know it or not, we have the ability to take control of our lives. And when we know where that strength and resilience comes from, it is a power that is unlike no other and is uniquely ours. Intergenerational trauma. It refers to the ways in which trauma experienced in one generation affects the health and well-being of descendants of the future generations. There's the other idea of intergenerational resilience. The positive influences of the generations before us have a direct influence in our lives today. For example, my great-grandfather was a self-made entrepreneur, a man from Japan who had no papers, jumped ship into Washington to become a lumberjack before learning how to cook. He owned restaurants up and down California, and when he was put into camp, he lost that restaurant. But when he had returned from camp, he had saved enough money to reopen his restaurant. Six months later, they bought their own home. Soon after, he had saved enough to expand that restaurant to the building next door. He supported his family building his own business. And today, I am the entrepreneur of my family. I've created small businesses and I'm growing one today. And if that one fails, I'll grow another. And one day I hope to own another restaurant and name it after my great-grandfather. I would rather hustle and struggle today so that I may live a much more enriched life working for myself and working with the people I enjoy working with. It is not an easy life, but it is a worthwhile endeavor. These stories from camp are difficult to talk about. They share their experiences with one another and with us so that not only do we understand each other, but that the world knows their story. If we do not tell our children what has happened to us, then they may never understand how they came to be. And for those who do not have family to talk about with this, the next thing we can do is read. Reading is an invaluable resource of education. We need to dive deep into this history so people can see and understand what Japanese Americans have come through. And for anybody who's not Japanese American, your history is just as valuable because that is how we understand each other. When we know how to share our stories and know the history of our people, we can understand that we are not alone in our plights. 
that we are not alone in the fight against systemic racism. This country has not been fair to people of color, and they want you to forget about it. But it is our duty to remember and to share. These books, they aren't your average history book. They're stories. They're stories of people trapped behind barbed wire by their own government. They're stories of resilience and strength, anguish and fear. We must learn these stories. Only your curiosity will lead you to these stories so that you may hear each and every one of them. There are too many to talk about. Not one podcast, one book, one movie will ever encompass all of them. The United States government doesn't want you to know these stories, but we need to be telling these stories so that future generations will never forget, so that they will know what this country is capable of and what they are unwilling to do to protect the white people of this country. We must hold the government accountable for what they have done, and we mustn't forget what they have done to our people and what they're doing to people today. We live in an unjust world. The least we can do is understand and learn. It is not easy to learn these things, but to ignore it and to decide in siding with the oppressor, you are becoming the oppressor. When you vote for people who agree with these things, who agree that people should be put in camps, that people do not deserve health care, you are voting for injustice. You are voting against humanity. You are voting for people to be treated as commodities. And we need to change that. Do not just take what someone is telling you at face value and do not be a silent bystander. Stand up for your rights. Stand up for the rights of others. Listen, learn, take action. Spend one day every week not watching TV and do something for somebody else. Not for your own gratification, not because you think you have to do it and you can wipe your hands clean. Do it because you know it's the right thing to do. And then do it again and again and again. Do it once a year. Do it twice a year. Keep doing it. It helps. Every action helps. Do something today. Because when you use your privilege and the time that you don't have to work a second job or a third job or take care of 10 children, when you can sit down on the couch and play nothing but Candy Crush, you have time to do something else. You have time to do something for other people. I understand my privilege. I understand the privileges that I did not sign up for. As a mixed race Japanese American who grew up in the middle class in the suburbs, I understand my privilege. I could be sitting down on the couch doing nothing, watching TV during this lockdown. But I am taking the time to do something about our issues. The issues that I fight for today may not be the ones you fight for tomorrow. But we are all working together to make a difference in this country. And fighting for justice cannot be left up to the people who need it most. We need allies. We need allies and accomplices who will stand up for others because we know it's wrong. If an innocent person stands before a judge in the court of law without a lawyer, how is that person supposed to fight for themselves? They are only ever going to plead for their innocence. The only way they can get somebody to believe them is if somebody else is fighting for them. We need to stick up for one another 
If you have people in your family who have been bullied for their skin color, teased for the slant in their eyes, who have been oppressed, racialized, victimized, had a hate crime, and if you ever see that happening to somebody, stand up for them. Stand up against racism. This is unacceptable. Hate is a virus, and if you don't stand up to it, it will not end. Don't just watch things happen and let life happen to you. Stand up and do something with your life because it may change somebody else's life. I believe that is our purpose in the world, that we are not to be using our life to be so selfish for our own personal gain, but to help others so that we can all live in a more enriched and freedom-filled life. That's the end of our show today. Thank you for listening to Redress Radio. I am going to take a break for the next few weeks. As I have mentioned, I am starting a new business, and with that, it takes time and effort. There is so much I want to share with you, and we're leading up to our launch in mid-January. I want to have more time to be focused and more dedicated for Redress Radio early next year. Until then, I hope these stories have helped you, and I look forward to sharing more with you next year. I would like to leave you with one special gift. For the past few weeks, we've been listening to a group of people, all in a room, all listening to these stories. And the one thing they did that was extremely special is that they joined hands and sang God Bless America. It brought me to tears to listen to these people who have been wronged by the country still sing an American patriotic song. Because at their core, they are Americans and they believe in the system. And that's why they're here talking to each other so that they could fight the government, so that they could stand up for their rights, because this is one of the few countries where you can still do that. So as we close out this podcast, close out this first preview season, please think about what it means to be an American, and what it really means to live in a land of the free. Thanks again for listening. This is Redress Radio. Power to all the people.